0: This podcast is a production of Schweitzer, a United Methodist Church, transforming lives by making disciples of Jesus Christ. Talking about those messages that we can pass along, pass on to our kids, our grandkids, uh, anyone that's in our life that we're mentoring, that we're bringing along in life. And we've talked about how uh, what adults need to know. We've talked about what kids need to know. And today, we're, we're going to focus on when to seize the moment. And by that, we mean how do you seize those teaching moments in everyday life where you intentionally share your values, your faith? And to be able to do that, first of all, of course, we have to know what our own personal faith and values are. And so to get started today, what I want to do is ask you to think about your own personal worldview. Now, on the front of your Pray, Study, Grow, you'll notice that there are uh, constructed for us uh, characteristics of the modern and the postmodern worldview, and those are the main worldviews that characterize people in our world today. If you were born prior to 1945, chances are you were growing up in a world that had a modern worldview. If you are a baby boomer, that worldview began to shift. If you're a generation X or a millennial generation person, then you're most likely to subscribe to the postmodern worldview characteristics. And just to look at those very quickly, in the modern worldview, man was the measure of all things, very humanism. And in the postmodern worldview, with all the different tough things that are happening in, in in a young person's personal life, as well as in the world, there's a sense of fatalism that is developing. In the modern worldview, there was absolute truth. In the postmodern worldview, truth is relative. In the modern worldview, science was everything. You know, science would bring us all the answers that we needed to have. In the postmodern world, technology uh, reigns as our servant, as our friend. The Enlightenment. Was what dictated the thoughts and hearts of people for centuries in that worldview. But in this shift to the postmodern worldview, it's more about, well, tell me your story. Your reality has to do with your own subjectivity. In the modern worldview, there's universal values, there's real clarity in terms of what's right and what's wrong. But in the postmodern world, we're much more tolerant in believing that. All persons' values are equal. In the modern worldview, we were very much geared toward materialism and we believed in whatever we could see or touch. There is a spiritualism in the postmodern worldview that leaves a lot of openness to what one experiences and believes about God or spirits. There is an individualism that's at the center. Of one's worldview, if you're a modern constructive person, if you are of the postmodern view, then you see yourself as a part of community and that all parts are parts of a whole. Now, which worldview of those two would better describe you? Think about that. Which ones do you? see an adherence to? Which ones do you differ from? If you're like me, there are some characteristics in a modern worldview or a postmodern worldview that I like, but there's also some things that are missing. In fact, I feel like there was a different worldview and there is a different worldview that is needed and so I wrote one myself (laughs) and it's on the back of the Pray, Study, Grow. It's the faith worldview. This is my personal worldview that is rooted in what I sense is the historic, real Christian faith. Here's my worldview. I believe in providence. I, I believe that God is sovereign over heaven and earth and over creation, and that everything that happens may not be God's perfect will, but God being providential and sovereign is able to bring what happens in alignment with his purposes and his truth. And so that to me is very comforting because when I mess up or I see all these messes in the world going on, hey, I know that there's an ultimate authority and reality out there that's still providential. I believe that truth is revealed through Jesus Christ. Now you may say, well, that's an awful narrow worldview. But I believe that Jesus Christ expands and broadens and rearranges my worldview in a way that I could not begin to imagine. I believe that Jesus Christ is the ultimate truth. He is the unique, absolute Savior of the world. And so He is the ultimate source. The God I know in Jesus is that truth. I believe that science and technology are wonderful tools and servants, but they're they're not the source of ultimate satisfaction or answers. That science doesn't give us everything we need to know. I believe that uh, in the narrative of faith that I only understand my story as a part of God's story. And as I read the scriptures, and I read the story of God, so many times I realize I'm reading about myself. In fact, I do not believe that I can find my own identity or even an understanding of who I am apart from the story of God. I believe in in a balance of values and tolerance. You know, in my worldview, um, I see that sometimes we have been too black and white in, in thinking there's just too much clarity about what's right and what's wrong. I'm also uncomfortable with the world where everything is gray and there doesn't seem to be any sense of black and white. And so in my worldview, there's a sense of there's black, there's white, and there's gray. In my understanding of spirituality, I believe that I have been reconciled and transformed by God through Jesus Christ. I don't believe this has anything to do with me. I don't think this has anything to do with my what I've done or deserve, but I believe that God reached out to me while I was messing up, and God has cared about me in His grace long before I even gave, gave Him a thought. And there is a love that woos me and draws me to Him that is manifested ultimately in the cross and that Jesus defeated death in His grave through his resurrection, and it is through that life and death and personal knowledge of Jesus Christ is ultimately my, response, my spirituality, and, and that's how I view and see the world. And then, finally, in, in the sense of community, I believe that Christian community is the ultimate community, and it's something that is created for us by God. We don't create Christian community, but we can participate in it. We can choose. And it is the richest, deepest experience in life to be rooted and grounded and journeyed together with brothers and sisters in Christ. Now i want to pause right here. I'm going to ask the people at Renovate to do the same thing. I'm going to give you a minute of just silence to ask yourself, what is your personal worldview? What do you believe and what do you not believe and why? And you may want to turn to your neighbor and say, What's he talking about? Or when do you think this sermon's going to be over anyway? But I'm going to give you a minute. What is your worldview? Chances are if you're uh, um, along in some years, your worldview is kind of set unless there's something that shatters it. There's a crisis you go through. If The younger you are, the more that that worldview is still taking shape. We're going to shift gears right now. We're going to look at a biblical story and we're going to look at that time when Moses is leading the people of Israel into this land that's been promised for them. Now, Keep in mind that the nation of Israel is a young nation, and yet they've been in slavery for 430 years. Now, just think about that number for just a minute. 430 years enslaved in Egypt. Moses is leading them to this land that's been promised to them. And in the midst of this movement toward the promised land, there's all kinds of messing up going on. And Moses is wanting to construct for the people a clear worldview that's based on faith. Not just faith in any God, but in faith in one God. The one true God, Yahweh, the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And they're going to go into a culture that's going to have a clash of worldviews. There's going to be all kinds of viewpoints and perspectives and relativity. And all kinds of gods with a small g. And so what Moses is wanting the people to have is a worldview that is based on the one true God that they understand Him to be. And so these are the words that Moses says to the people of Israel about that worldview. In Deuteronomy chapter 6 beginning with verse 1. These are the commands, the decrees, and the laws. The Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. So that you and your children and your, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you and so that you may enjoy long life. So God's doing this because he cares about his people. Hear Israel and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and so that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey Just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. And here he continues. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children and talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now, did you notice that in these words, Moses essentially tells the people to do two things about God? He tells them to fear God in verse 2, and he tells them to love God in verse 5. Now, you may want to say, well, which is it, Moses? Are we supposed to fear God, or are we supposed to love God? What does it mean to fear God? Does it mean to be in a trembling sense of fear? Does it mean to have that kind of sense of a God that's not approachable? One of my favorite verses in 1 John chapter 4 says these words in the New Testament, that there's no fear in love. For perfect love, love that's made complete, a love that's mature, cast out fear. For fear has to do with torment or judgment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And so the fear that God is calling us to is not a trembling sense of fear, although there is a sense that we never fully lose that completely. But it is a fear that has to do with respect and reverence and honor, and awe. In fact, I'm not sure we can really love someone and not revere and respect them. And so we get this sense that what we're called to do in in our worldview, in what we pass on and what shapes us, is a deep sense of reverence and respect and love for God. Now, how much are we supposed to love God anyway? How much of ourselves are we supposed to give over to God? You ever think about that? How much, God, do you really want? you got 25%. A little bit more, a little bit less. How much of uh, us does God want? Everything. He wants it all. What, is, what does God say in the words? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. In the Hebrew understanding, heart included your mind. So it's the seat of emotions, it's the will, it's it's all that we've got. Love God with all your soul, your total person, and love God with all your strength. All you got. All of it. Really? Everything. Uh, not just part of the time or wherever we are or whatever we're doing but it's really the only way it works it's really all or nothing sometimes i wish i could say it differently or it was different but that's just the way it is all of you and if it's not everything it just doesn't work how do you love god half-heartedly how do you make a marriage work half-heartedly? How do you root for a baseball team half-heartedly? There's a sense of identity that comes with that. This summer, uh, Susan, Jonathan, and I went to see the Pittsburgh Pirates and the St. Louis Cardinals in Pittsburgh. We went and saw two games. We saw the Cardinals lose twice to the Bucks. It was tough. And wherever I go, I wear the birds on the bat, and as you're wearing the uniform into the opposing ballpark, you get remarks. You take the remarks, the grain of salt. They say, well, this place is really starting to stink up around here with all those Cardinal fans. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, you know, the aroma of Christ to those who are saved is sweet to those who are perishing. It stinks. So um, <laughs> I'm having these wonderful conversations with Pirate fans, and, and really, they're, they're good, knowledgeable fans, and having a lot of fun with that. And at on occasion, um, this one Pirate fan says, I have a love-hate relationship with the Cardinals. I hate the Cardinals because they always play us so tough. I love them because they're the class of baseball. And I say to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. (laughs) No, I didn't really say that. But it was tough. It was tough being there where you're the only one rooting and yelling in your section. And I'm here to tell you that there was at one point where... um, the Cardinals were losing their second game in a row and I'm not a happy camper and the fans around me are really giving me what for? One guy went out and got my little, my first visit to PNC Park that you give to children and they wanted me to have that, so for a little poster. <laughs> and in the eighth inning I just could taste it no more and I get up and I start walking out and the fans say, where are you going, the game's not over. And I simply say, I'll see you guys in the playoffs if you make it. <laughs> so I'm not a half hearted fan or follower of the Cardinals. A man falls in love with a woman, he invites her to marry him. And so he says to his fiancé, I have 13 girlfriends. As we're getting married, I want you to know I'm going to give up all but three. (laughs) How do you make a marriage work? How do you make a relationship work? How do you make allegiance work? When someone has been smitten by God, it becomes very difficult to hold anything back. In fact, I can't think of anything more miserable than trying to follow God half-heartedly. It's hard to do a job half-heartedly. It's hard to do a marriage half-heartedly. What does it mean to be smitten by God? If God really is the creator of the universe and everything in it, if God loves me with an undying love, if God demonstrates his love to me while I'm messing up and a sinner, Christ dies for me. If God was raised from the dead, and that's my ultimate hope in being, if I came from God and I'm going back to God. When things are so screwy in the world, how can I not give allegiance to a good, righteous, holy God? How can I hold anything back? And that's got to be, isn't it, the ultimate way that we're shaped and formed? It's not just a worldview. It's a way of doing life. And it's what we're called to do. And we can't help ourselves if we've been smitten by the one who loves us with an everlasting love. Well, how do we do this? Moses says, do it. Teach it in everyday life. Teach your children. Pass it on. When you rise and when you get down at night, when you walk, when you sit, you know, he uses this strange language about wrapping it around your arms and your hands. They literally did that in writing the Shema, the, the love of God around their Maybe you put it on a computer screen, but the idea is that we do this in everyday life. We take those teaching moments. We take those times in everyday life when things happen unexpectedly or we're going through the day and we have this moment. We tell our children, our spouses, our partner, our, the people that are our friends in our life, we, we talk about how faith must and does shape and form everything that we do. And it's in those daily moments as well as those big moments that come along every once in a while that that shapes and frames us in a way that children will never forget. You know, that's one of the reasons I talk about my grandmother in, in practicing prayer is I really believe that we cannot construct for children one hour a week at Schweitzer or reconstruct or deconstruct in one hour a a worldview of faith when they're not given that at home, and they're certainly not primarily exposed to that in the world. It just isn't going to happen. And so what an opportunity for us as adults, as parents, as grandparents, to intentionally be leading and guiding other people. And Practicing Prayer is a book. That's very practical about six weeks, five days a week, doing the daily exercises that practices that experience. So I want to encourage you to, I want to seize this moment to encourage you to not just purchase the book, but, and not read the book, but to use it as a guidebook for six weeks. And you'll be in a different place in six weeks. And then what about those big moments? You know, when your kid messes up. Uh, I get this question a lot. You know, what am I going to do because my child did this? I think back to the time when I was 16 years of age. October 2nd, 1970 is a day I will never forget. Four of us guys were driving the family car. I was actually driving the family car, the 1969 Chevy Impala. Gerald Finch was to my right, Junior Bruce, and my brother Roger was in the back seat. We just dropped off a couple of girls. We'd come from the Friday football game at Putnam County, where the Unionville Midgets play one of the worst mascot, inappropriate, politically incorrect names you could ever think of. But it was the Unionville Midgets. Just a little side information there. Uh, We dropped the girls off. We were a mile from home, and the guy said to me, Robert, uh, give us a thrill. And so I intentionally start fishtailing the car on this gravel road, and it's got a few uh, tops to the hill. And after the first couple of swerves that were intentional, I began to make broader swerves that were not intentional. I quickly lost control of the car, and I managed, in within seconds, to turn my, f- my family's car over in a ditch. And so there we are, the four of us. This is before seatbelts. And Gerald Finch, to my right, breaks the silence by asking the question, is anybody dead? (laughs) And for seconds, it seemed like an eternity. Nobody said anything. And then my brother broke the silence by saying, Robert, I can't believe you did this. And so we get out of the car. We look each other over. There's not a scratch miraculously on any of us and we make the one-mile walk home to tell the parents. My father surveys the damage. I remember him uh, looking at me uh, in the eye and saying, I guess we'll just drive the D pickup. It's the only curse word he ever said. And out of that whole experience, I went through a time where I was scared to death to drive. I drove the family pickup, the old 64 Ford. I managed to put a scrape on it when I went too close to a fence post. I remember parking the Alice Chalmers one night and I knocked a headlight out of the, out of the tractor. I was in a real driving slump. <laughs> and when the car got back, I refused to drive it. But my father insisted that I get behind the wheel. No time did my father ever Give me a hard time for all the infractions I was putting on the family property. And from that experience, I learned these two big lessons from my father that the way to overcome fear is to face it. And I was more valuable than a car or truck or tractor or any piece of property the family could own. Those things I learned from my father, not because he said them, but because he did everything to reinforce those lessons. You and I seize moments every day. And there's those little daily moments that we can intentionally verbalize or demonstrate our faith. And there's those big moments in a kid's life where how we respond and how we react and that reinforces everything about what they believe that we believe. I want to encourage you to think about your faith, think about your worldview. What is it? What's the values and the faith that you have that you really want your kid or the next generation to get? And how will you use the moments of every day to pass that on.